Today on Footnoting History, we explore the Opium Wars, the causes, the war, and the outcomes. Jardine Matheson. Today, these two names represent an incredibly successful holding company with interest in everything from transportation to restaurants. But if we were to rewind the clock and look not at the company, but at the founders, William Jardine and James Matheson, we would discover two men heavily invested in a single business pursuit, moving opium from India into China. Jardine and Matheson were not smugglers, nor were they, in the eyes of the English government, criminals. In fact, many viewed them as respectable businessmen following the entrepreneurial and free market spirit that was so much the vogue in their mother Scotland. The causes of the war begin with the most British of all consumables, tea. Far from gross stereotyping, tea was the foundation of trade between the British and Chinese, and nearly the foundation of the British economy and culture in general. The trade, like the consumption of tea itself, was a highly ritualized dance between the English East India Company, or EIC, and the Chinese Hongs. Until 1834, the EIC maintained a monopoly on the tea trade, while their counterparts in the Hongs represented the interests of the Celestial Empire. The Hongs were Chinese merchants licensed by the state. It is important to understand the place of merchants in the overall social hierarchy of the Qing dynasty in China. Unlike in Britain, where merchants have begun to supplant the landed aristocracy in terms of prestige, in China, merchants fell well below their landed counterparts, in some cases falling as low in regard as peasants. They dealt with foreigners, and their wealth came not from the careful cultivation of land and by extension tradition, but from the exploitation of the labor of others. Simply put, Trade was not something that the Qing dynasty viewed as important, and certainly not trade with barbarian foreigners. For this reason, trade between Europeans and the Chinese was limited to a single port at Canton in southern China, today known as Guangzhou. The Chinese government viewed both international trade in general and the products of Europeans as irrelevant and inferior. In fact, the only thing that the Celestial Empire was interested in was silver. For the East India Company, this posed a problem, but not an insurmountable one. Demand for tea was high enough to offset the hemorrhaging of specie to China. In India, the EIC held a monopoly on another product, opium, which was grown and used throughout the subcontinent in drinks and for medicinal and spiritual purposes. Diluted and moderately less addictive, opium was a legal product sold and taxed by the EIC. Opium had entered China before the EIC through the Southeast Asian merchants, who mixed it with other herbs. By the 18th century, the Chinese had developed a method of smoking pure opium. It was in this context that the British merchants, such as Jardine and Matheson, began acting as consigners in Canton for the opium trade in the early 19th century. Although labeled by some as smugglers, Jardine and his partner Matheson did not technically bring the opium into China. Instead, they merely consigned it, facilitating the trade with the Chinese dealers. From the point of view of the British, they were legally purchasing a product in India and legally selling it to Chinese merchants. What the merchants did with it after the sale was in fact their own business, and any illegality an issue between the Celestial Empire and its subjects. Of course, the Confucian bureaucracy who ran the Celestial Empire were not fools. Many were taking bribes, a long-established tradition in any bureaucracy, to look the other way or in some cases assist with the sales. The Emperor, however, viewed this as the English government's failure to regulate their merchants. From a Confucian standpoint, the opium trade was exactly why merchants were not to be trusted. Their materialism corrupted those around them, causing otherwise law-abiding citizens and subjects to reject and abandon the traditional relationships between the lord and subject, father and son, husband and wife. But the English government and the EIC took a very different view. 
It is important to keep in mind the liberal influences of John Locke and those natural rights of life, liberty, and property. From the English perspective, it was the individual's responsibility to maintain their morality, not the central government. If China did not want opium within its borders, it should promote better values, ironically, an almost Confucian sentiment. Furthermore, the opium was being traded for silver, the same silver that the EIC and after 1834 English merchants were using to buy tea. What had been the slow vacuum of specie began to equalize and eventually became a surplus. Merchants, such as Jardine and Matheson, then traded the silver for EIC notes, which was as good as cash. The Celestial Empire was therefore under attack on multiple fronts. Culturally and socially, opium was destroying Confucian values and upsetting the proper hierarchy while simultaneously weakening the economy. It was in this context that in 1839, Chinese officials seized over 20,000 pounds of opium, destroying all of it. It was this loss of property that will motivate the English to action against the Chinese government. The first opium war was very much a limited war with specific objectives. At no point did the English consider the conquest and colonization of China. Instead, they saw reparations for the damaged property, a resumption of trade, and the establishment of a British port at what later became Hong Kong. The war itself was not without controversy and opposition formed along political lines in England. Tories argued that the war was necessary to protect the nation's honor, others that it defended open markets. Liberal opposition to the war focused on the immorality of opium. The end of the war began the century of humiliation for China. Claims by the emperor of China's innate superiority no longer rang true to the people who had watched their military easily defeated by English weaponry. In a last-ditch attempt to lessen the influence of the English in China, the empire opened trade to other European nations, hoping that infighting would dilute the economic power. Instead, the Europeans discovered that there was enough of China to go around. Japan would watch and learn, first by not resisting the advances of Admiral Perry and the United States, and then by aggressive modernization during the Meiji Restoration. Throughout all of this was Jardine and Matheson slowly expanding their trade interests to include tea, sugar, and cotton, and enlarging the area of trade to include the Philippines and parts of Southeast Asia. The firm became the largest and most influential of the British firms in Asia, and when China opened in 1979, it should surprise no one that Jardine Matheson was there. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!